back down and shut your trap. It's time for keeping it sports with them three. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, I'll need some beer. Are you ready? You have to ask me nicely. Come on now, don't be bashful. Are you ready? Ready? Are you ready for place for the best sports talk and news surrounding each league? I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. Hey man, this time I'm gonna do it my way. Uh, what's your name again? And now, here's your host, M3, Mike Rosansky. Okay. Good Tuesday afternoon, everyone. Coming to you from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. It is time for Keeping It Sports with M3, powered by, as always, the Connected School Broadcasting. How's it going out there? Hope you all doing well here on this Tuesday, the 31st and final day of the month of May. Now, of course, yesterday did not do the podcast because we were closed due to Memorial Day, a day that, you know, yeah, it's mostly used as us all relaxing, having an extended weekend, but <laughs> excuse me. Yes, we still have that cough. I apologize in advance, but it's a day that is meant to take time out to remember those who paid the ultimate sacrifice and allow, to allow us to have that day off, to ha- allow us to live our life in the freedom that we choose to do so. And hopefully, in most cases, don't take that for granted. Now, in having that day off, it was also a the beginning of a three-day off, three days off for the NBA. And it's you know, kind of weird because every night we've had games. Every night... We've had NBA playoff games. Now, Rangers, Hurricanes made up for that somewhat, but wasn't much of a game after uh, the second period. I'll get to uh, more thoughts on that in a little bit. But uh, we have our NBA Finals now, and we knew half of it going into the weekend as the Warriors relatively cruise to winning uh, the Western uh, Conference Finals. I, I give the Mavericks some credit for showing some heart, showing some guts, showing some tenacity in winning game four, not just getting uh, the donut shoved right in their face and getting swept. The only team that is going to suffer that embarrassment uh, this postseason, it seems, so is, of course, my Brooklyn Nets, who I'll have a thought or two on them a little bit later on as we go on here. But uh, now you you figured Dodgers and the crew were going to have a, a big performance, uh, not want to get swept and get the series ended at home. And it was kind of a weird game, that game for it, because you essentially had two half times with the whole situation with the they're starting to be the leaky roof, but the the Warriors. What's weird is the Warriors have had this, where they have these closeout games on the road, 
and it whether it's a combination of bad shooting or just I don't know lack of interest. I, are they playing with fire a little bit too much here? Yeah, uh, the Mavs shot almost fifty percent from uh, beyond the arc, and had uh, their others you know really step up both. You know, especially after uh, some of these guys, uh, you know, had donuts in the uh, game three. You're like, how do you not, not score even one point in an NBA game when you play 35 uh, plus minutes when you're re- a guy like Reggie Bullock, but he was able to bounce back and have a representable, respectable game. Had to. After what an embarrassing show he put up uh, the, in the previous game, but the Warriors have lacked this sense of urgency when it comes to shutting teams down. I mean, we saw them get blown out by the Grizzlies in uh, Game Five in the previous round. Then they, uh, you know, tried to battle back, even got it down to single digits. But remember, they were down by. 25 plus points at one point in uh, this game. And you wonder how much longer they can play with fire. Now you did get a, a game six clay performance in game five, the other night to end this, put the uh, Mavericks out of their misery. And the key for the Mavericks going forward is two things. One, Jalen Brunson, with the way he played this postseason, definitely played himself into a contract extension with uh, the Mavericks. Definitely played himself into being a part of the puzzle long-term there. But to me, he's only a very nice piece. You know, he, he had some explosive moments in this postseason. He had that 40-point game earlier in the postseason when... Uh, Dantage was out, but to me, he's not a real number two if you're trying to win a championship. And think about if you're the Mavericks, how long it took you guys to win a championship for Dirk Nowitzki. It took him until the second half of his career to finally get that one ring. That's mostly because you you never got him that true number two guy you never got him his robin to him being batman and you don't want to do that to luca here either now same time luca i think has to come into next season in much better shape he was admittedly out of shape at the start of the season played him into self into shape as the season went on but you saw in game five he was worn out he was tired and Somewhat understandable considering he's your only consistent force on that team. And, you know, with the defense Andrew Wiggins played on him in uh, this series, never seemingly giving him any breathing room, you can understand that. But he's got to, you know, he's never going to be LeBron physically. That's why, you know, all these comparisons about matching up his first four years in the NBA to LeBron's first four years in the NBA to me are kind of ridiculous, kind of a waste of our time because even though he was playing with grown men 
across season in Europe. He was playing professionally. Now, LeBron James went straight from high school playing with other kids to then being a a pro, to then um, being in the big time. You know, Luca. Well, you could say, oh, he got to play with other men. He got to uh, grow there. All due respect, that league is not on the level of the NBA. So it's a difficult pill for you if you're a Mavericks fan, but you went up against a Warriors team that, you know, while they lacked a sense of urgency in, in Game 4, seems like a team on a mission, a team with a point point to prove considering, okay, you know, that they've gone through a couple of different phases here. There was the initial group that Steve Kerr took over after Mark Jackson's firing and they won a championship once he installed a system there and they weren't just a bunch of jump shooters. They actually played a fun style of basketball where it was about getting the best shot, not getting your own shot. They failed to win a championship after going 73 and nine. So they bring in Durant and became unstoppable. That was phase two. Then Clay and Durant get hurt. Durant leaves. You have two years where it's Curry by himself, which Raymond seeming, seeming disinterested and they're developing <laughs> all these young kids, all these young players to uh, build with it in here. You have the emergence of, of Jordan Poole. You make the trade and get Andrew Wiggins. And now this team looks ready to roll again. Looks like they're, I don't want to say they're going to be another dynasty. I don't want to say that because... You know, you could argue maybe the dynasty hasn't ended. It's just another phase of it. But look, and while nothing can ever be guaranteed, I mean, look at Clay Thompson, what he's been through for the last three, four years here. Nothing can ever be guaranteed in sports. They've set themselves up in a position where even as Curry and Thompson and Draymond, to a lesser extent, start to get older, they've got this younger crew around them while not at the same level as they once were and still somewhat are, are going to be able to lighten the burden a little bit where they're not going to have to be, you know, the guy each and every single night. There will be moments where Jordan Poole uh, takes over a game. There will be moments if, if he sticks with them that Andrew Wiggins He's shown that he is a very valuable starter in this league. I, mean, I think we all got down on Andrew Wiggins a little bit too much just based on the fact that he was the first overall pick in uh, the draft. And people started saying that he was a bust. But he's turned his career around and become a very valuable uh, player on a championship contending team. A championship contending team that's now going to have to go up against the Boston Celtics, aiming for their 18th championship. 
And now the Celtics Heat was a very fun series. I mean, you had you know you had moments where it was competitive, but you seemingly every night you had a different storyline, whether it be the embarrassing performance that the Heat starters put up in game four. I mean, 18 combined points. You got outscored by at that the the Heat starting lineup got outscored by at least three starters on the the Boston Celtics, and you combine that with uh, Tatum uh, bouncing back, they had no shot. Then you had a back and forth battle in Game Five before the Celtics just decided to take over the joint in the third quarter, have that insane twenty four to two run. And essentially tell uh, the Heat goodbye, good night. That mixed in with a poor shooting night by Jimmy Butler. But the last two games, Jimmy Butler tried his damnedest to drag that team kicking and screaming to the NBA Finals. And this, not just this series, but this postseason, once again, for anyone that doubts him, should tell that Jimmy Butler's a superstar in this sport. You know, there are going to be those say, oh, well, he doesn't have a ring yet. I mean, please, what else do you expect him to do? You know, that's why there's been a lot of conjecture. There's been a lot of debate on TV, radio, podcasts, uh, social media the last couple of days. Was that the right thing to do? For Jimmy Butler, as they're working their way back into this game, they're down by 13 uh, late, and then they go on that 11-0 run, mixed in with a controversial call where I still to this moment don't know whether Max Shrew's, um foot was or wasn't touching uh, the out-of-bounds line, but uh, that's a debate that will be had forever. You know, Butler, as they're in the middle of this run here, they get it within two with about 15 seconds to go. And instead of driving the paint where it was wide open, decides to pull up and take a three-point shot, a shot that I'm sure he's practiced many times, a shot that he's hit plenty of times. And it bounced off the the rim. And from there, the Celtics were able to clinch getting back to the finals. Now, at the time, I... I'll be honest, at the time when watching it live, I was saying, oh, drive the paint, extend the game. But when you think about it, when you really look at this hard, you know, it would have just delayed the inevitable. Because, yeah, at this point, nobody's 100%. Nobody, everybody's dealing with some kind of nick, some kind of uh, nagging problem, some kind of nagging issue. But if they... Now, go to overtime there. You're just giving Tatum and company another chance to beat you. And you look at the that Heat team at the end of the series. Yeah, Bam played well after what was a, a uh, somewhat suspect couple of games in uh, this series. But you didn't get much from anybody else. That's why they were down by 13 late in uh, this game. And some of it contributed to the fact that you know, Kyle Lowry could barely stand. Tyler Hero 
only played seven minutes. Max Schrute was uh, dealing uh, with the issues uh, by the time you got to game seven here. And even Jimmy Butler, you know, in a private, honest moment, this this offseason will probably say that, yeah, there was something up with me, but I didn't want to bring it up at the time because that's the kind of competitor that he is. But in his mind, it was a split decision there. Do I drive the paint and extend this or do I just say to hell with it? Either um, we're going to win this thing or I'm going down swing. And so, you know, there will be people critical of that decision, but you can't be critical of what Jimmy Butler did in this series and what he meant to this Miami Heat team in this series. And without his performance in game six, you know, if they won that series, his performance in game six is talked about forever. And it's going to be a game we're talking about for a long time. Perfect from the foul line, putting up a, a career high in the postseason, 47 points, you know, outshining both Tatum, Brown, and doing that up in Boston um, where that crowd is jacked, that crowd is looking to clinch there. So I can't knock anything Jimmy Butler has done this postseason because no, he did his part. He just didn't get a lot of consistent help from his others. You can bring up him playing bad in game five, but outside of that, you're really grasping for straws. Now the finals begin this coming Thursday. Kind of stupid that the game doesn't begin until nine o'clock. But you know you have a couple of things here. The the Warriors nine and zero in this postseason so far at home, and you know that that's for most teams. Excuse me, that would be a scary proposition. But you look at this Celtic team; they've been perfect after a loss in this postseason. Hell, they went into Miami. And won three games in that last series. You know they, oh, even when the their backs were against the wall, even when it seemed like all the chips were down, they showed a a toughness and a tenacity throughout not just that series, but in this postseason um, altogether uh, so far. Not so much. You know, when they were playing the Nets because it wasn't necessary, but against both the Bucks and the Heat, you know, were able to survive tough, grueling seven game series and were able to win games in the opposition's house. And they've been the best team in this league since January, after what was a slow start, have been 20 games over since then. Now, what's going to be interesting is. You know, the the big key matchup here. You know, Marcus Smart is going to get the majority of uh, the assignment against Steph Curry. And there's a couple things that Steph has got to battle here. Number one, his finals demons. And while his numbers look respectable, his numbers look uh, pretty good 
for an all-time great who's won three championships, there's a lot of people out there that will say, that's not enough. There's a lot of people out there that will say, oh, you've got three titles because two of them were handed to you by Kevin Durant. And he was the MVP for two of those. There's a lot of people that look down on him for his performance in the first finals against the Cavs because of the fact that he wasn't the MVP. Of all people, Andre Iguodala was the MVP. So he's got that hurdle to overcome. He's also got the hurdle of going up against Marcus Smart, who in their careers, when Marcus Smart has been the closest defender to him, Steph's only shooting 29%. So it's going to be, I think, a very fun finals. I think a very, you know, intriguing in so many ways. Like, you know, we've seen with Clay Thompson, how he's been slowly but surely working himself back to the old Clay as this has been going on. Are we going to get more of what we saw from Clay in game five, or is he just going to be another piece to the puzzle? Jason Tatum, it feels like, it feels like Tatum only has been having these big historic games uh, after a loss or when people start questioning and start doubting him. But no, if you're one of those Skip Bayless people out there that are still doubting him, still doubting how great he is, you're clearly not watching these games, clearly not seeing that you know that this is a young star emerging uh, before us. And rather than be critical, just enjoy the ride. Enjoy what you're seeing. But as far as a prediction in this series, I hope it goes seven games. I would love that, you know, especially for someone who doesn't have a dog in the fight, even though it is, it is cringeworthy every time I have to watch uh, both Jason Tatum and uh, uh, Jalen Brown, considering they were draft picks given to the Celtics by the Brooklyn Nets. And this is no bitterness against the Boston Celtics, but I'm going to pick the Warriors in seven games to win their fourth championship in the last eight years. But like I said, let's hope for seven and hope for an all-time classic here. All right, a lot left to get to here. I'll give you some uh, thoughts on the Rangers last night, um, mixing some more NBA thought as we go on here, some NFL stuff to talk about. So plenty to get through in uh, this podcast. Glad you guys could join me. So at this time, as always, please sit back, relax, help put your feet up if you feel like it, and continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you 
also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. this excitement going on from the NBA playoffs, it kind of, I don't know, casts a cloud over what has been just as exciting with uh, the NHL postseason. Postseason that, quite frankly, those games are more competitive, more having you sit on the edge of your seat, more thrilling. And maybe it's because hockey, unfortunately, has always been treated as sort of the redheaded stepchild when it comes to professional sports. I know yours truly has always looked at it as, you know, it's kind of fourth child when it comes to the sports realm, but doesn't take away from my enjoyment of the sport. So I was locked in watching Rangers Hurricanes game seven last night and Begrudgingly, I must say, congratulations, Ranger fans. Congratulations on winning another Game 7. You know, it's interesting. This team, even when they (laughs) seemingly, all the chips are down, have their backs up against the wall, they don't seem phased by things. They seem to take on the mindset and the moxie of their head coach coach uh Gerard Gallant because he knows when the right time to push buttons are he knows when the right time to stand there stoic almost in the fashion of a Joe Torre or you know yell at the team like he did after game five when he told them or at least told the media that they looked tired He flat out called them out after what was kind of a lackluster performance after two back-to-back great wins at MSG. But the last two games, you look at it, the Rangers came out flying, looked like the clearly superior team, the more dominant team. And a lot of that due to uh, the the work of their uh, young emerging players Goaltender Igor Shostakin, who, for all the right reasons, was uh, one of uh, the favorites um, as the season went on for the Vesna Trophy. I mean, especially last night, he had you now guys like Tony D'Angelo and Brady Skeed, um Just like, how do we get this puck past him? That there was one point. I think it was the second period where he was doing essentially a snow angel on the ice, covering up the puck, had lost his stick, uh, has 
got attackers in his face and he's just laying there like a snow angel, essentially playing dead with this puck underneath them. And the Rangers um, got out to a quick lead in this game. And that's what you need. When you're on the road and viewed as the underdog, doesn't matter what sport it is. It can be hockey, baseball, basketball. Hell, even in the NFL, I think this applies. And you're viewed as the underdog. You have to come out aggressive. You have to come out and come out with a killer mindset and be willing to strike first and get the first blow in and have your opposition back on their heels. There was never a point as the game went on last night where you thought, Oh, here come the hurricanes. Here they they come. You know, they're down two nothing after one period. Down oh what was it? Three one heading to uh the third period. They lose they then or three nothing heading to the third period. They then uh, lose their goaltender. And from there it was uh uh you know all you could say or all she wrote uh, should I say, for the Hurricanes uh, in a season that has to be pretty uh, disappointing for the way it, it ended. I mean, maybe not as disappointing as if you're a Florida Panther fan today and you just got waxed by the lightning, getting swept in the first round after having the best record in uh, the NHL this season. and having record-setting performances. But it definitely does hurt losing a game seven like that at home. (laughs) But, you know, what you could say works against the Rangers also works in their favor in in this that, yeah, they have no time to rest here. This series against the Lightning begins tomorrow night. But it begins the whole argument that we've had since the beginning of time. Rest versus uh, versus rust. No, the, the Lightning, they've been sitting on their couches. They've been sitting back chilling for a while now, for almost a week, waiting for an opponent. The Rangers have been playing each and every single night. I think the... Uh, or every other night, should we say. It hasn't been your typical postseason where it's divided up like the NBA playoffs where it's one night off here, two nights off there. No, it's been an every other night event. So they've played something in the realm. I I think the number is 14 games in a 28-day span. And Sturkin has now, with this played a career-high 65 games. And while that may not seem a lot for a goaltender, it is his first time going through this. Remember, last year he ended the season injured, and the Rangers didn't make the postseason. So he didn't have this kind of wear and tear on him. And while he's a young guy, the first time you go through anything like this, it's almost like, the first time a, a young starting pitcher in baseball throws 200 innings, you got to build up the calluses. You got to build up, you know, 
the mentality of, oh, this is what it's like doing this. This is what I am putting my body through in uh, the heat of uh, battle here. And you you wonder at what point does it catch up to the Rangers considering back-to-back seven-game series and now you still have two more rounds to go to get your first to try to get your first cup in 28 years. Now, yours truly being the bitter Devils fan I am, will be rooting against them all the way. But Ranger fans, I do wish you all the luck in what even as a Rangers hater, an honest Rangers hater, you know, I give them credit when credit is due and i'll rip them a new one when it's uh deserved as well it's been a very fun ride what you guys are are going through right now i can only imagine for a fan base that had not experienced true postseason excitement at madison square garden in over five years must be a very joyous uh, ride to go through. But, you know, even if they get through the lightning, they're going to have held to deal with in the the cup finals because, you know, out West, you've got what the league wants. Young stars going up against each other. The headlines, of course, being McKinnon uh, for the Avalanche and Connor McDavid, who's quickly emerging as probably the face of this league going up against each other. And, you know, while it would be cool to see the lightning three Pete do something that has not been done since even before yours truly was born. There's part of me that's kind of rooting for the Edmonton Oilers here, just because a Canadian team has not won the cup since uh, the uh, 93 Montreal Canadiens. And I just would love to see how insane that country in particular, that providence ever would go if they ever won another championship. Now the Rangers aren't the only ones dealing with some excitement right now. You still got, the Yankees and the Mets in the midst of their uh, seasons or the first third of their seasons. And so far it's been a very fun start to the season for both these teams. I I have, I do have to apologize to Met fans. I did do have to be honest here. You know, remember a couple weeks ago when you started having more pitching injuries with losing Tyler McGill. And then on top of that, Max Scherzer being gone for two months. I did say that I think that the Mets are going to somewhat come back to the pack. I did say that I thought that their five-game lead in the division would slowly but surely slip away. But due to the fact that the Braves seem destined to be a 500 team at best. The Phillies can't get out of their own way. Uh, You saw all the dismay they deal with this weekend with their poor defense and awful bullpen. I mean, Joe Girardi's hair is turning grayer by the second. And the fact that the, the Marlins and the Nationals are the Marlins and the Nationals, the Mets have been able to build 
a comfortable lead over each team um, 50 games in. I mean, the closest to them isn't the closest team to them is the Braves at nine and a half right now. I mean, and you know, you, you look at the season Alonzo's having leading the league in RBIs, but Lindor has come on fire as of late. I mean, he's starting to look like the guy that you expected him to be when you, you made that big trade for him in his last 11 games, hitting 360 uh, has, Driven in 18 runs, scored 14 of his own. And, you know, while on paper his numbers don't look, in, you know, superstar impressive so far this season, you have to remember, he's already driven in 40 runs this year. Last year, um, for the entire first half, he drove in 36 runs. So, you know, I expect as we go on here, his numbers to get even better. And he's clearly shown there's no residual effect of the release of Robinson Cano because that was something that was a bit of a concern of with how close they were. As well as he's shown a little bit of maturity this year. Part of it is you know, Buck's no-nonsense mentality. But the other part is you know, getting rid of Javier Baez, who clearly was a bad apple in the, that locker room. Then the Mets don't have the, the Mets really look at it on that team right now, really don't have any of these all about me. I'm going to run the team kind of personalities that they've had in the past, whether it was Matt Harvey or Noah Syndergaard, or you want to go back even further to the likes of, uh, Jose Reyes, uh, Carlos Delgado, those, uh, kind of guys. Even Baez was becoming part of that with the thumbs down crap he did to the fans last year. No, the, this Mets team, they have a little bit of a charm to them. They have a, this oh, no matter who goes down we're still in a good position and they've built themselves a comfortable cushion here that you know, as they start to get starting pitchers back with looking like McGill's going to be back in the next week or so they can make a serious run here at setting themselves up for the postseason. And, you know, I know there's a lot of panic from some of my fellow Yankee fans right now. You look at the fact that Stanton's on the IL. Donaldson's on the IL. They've lost three relief pitchers to the IL in the last uh, week and a half, including Chad Green going down for for the year with Tommy John surgery, something that you know, I just feel awful for him because he's been a rock for this team for the last five years and in his free agent year uh, suffers as bad an injury that any pitcher can deal with. But the, the start that the Yankees have gotten off to allows them the chance to tread water until they get people back. You know, the, and what's really helped here is the improvement in the starting rotation so far this year. You look at this this Yankee team. They're 18 games over 500 after, you know, after splitting four games against the Rays over the weekend, tied with the Dodgers for the best record in baseball. And while you have Judge off to a great start, an MVP caliber start, 
Stanton was playing well before his injuries. You're starting to see Glaber Torres with him back at second base looking like the Glaber Torres we uh, re- remember. The real key here has been the pitching staff, especially the starting rotation. Because last year, this starting rotation had an ERA of 3.91. And look what happened. It's essentially the same staff, you know, minus Kluber adding Severino in now. But you got rid of Gary Sanchez, who was a nightmare behind uh, the plate. And this team now, so far through 48 games, their starting rotations ERA is a full run lower than it was last year. Now, does help that Nestor Cortez is having a better season than expected. But you look at the the highest ERA in the starting rotation is Garrett Cole. And we know he had you know two kind of clunkers along the way, including against uh, the Orioles last week. But for the most part, he's been fine. He's been what you expect him to be. Severino has looked good coming back from Tommy John surgery. Jamison Tyon um, has shaken off. All the rust seemingly uh, from uh, missing two years. He just had uh, a wonderful eight-inning performance against the Rays on Friday night. And you know, Jordan Montgomery, quite frankly, you, know, the, you have to do an investigation on whether or not the Yankees hate him. Because he's pitching well and just gets no run support. The problem with this team right now is you have certain uh, people in this lineup not pulling their weight. And the fact that they're not hitting a lot of home runs right now with Stanton out, with Donaldson out, with uh, LeMahieu not showing much, if any pop at all, and Rizzo calming down after the hot start he got off to. I mean, he had nine home runs in his first 20 games. He's got two in the last 27 games. And his average um, in that time has had about buck 50. The only reason that's not getting talked about more is because of the two black holes in the Yankee lineup that you know, quite frankly I lose my mind every single time these two clowns uh, come to the plate. I you between whether it's Gallo or Hicks. I I'm not sure which one of these guys I hate being on the Yankees more right now. I you look at Joey Gallo this clown has struck out 52 times already in 120 at-bats. That's on pace if he has 600 at-bats to strike out 260 times. That's you know Chris Davis' level of striking out. And what's even worse is he, well, he's got five home runs. He got off to a slow start power-wise. He's got only seven RBIs. That means outside those home runs, he's only driven in two runs. And... It's shameful, his performance. Hey, Scott Boris, please, you better be really preparing up some presentation for um, teams that could be interested in him, in him in free agency because he's not getting any more than a one-year for $4 million contract at this rate with uh, the way that he's playing so far. And what's been just as bad as him is Aaron Hicks. One home run, seven RBIs, hitting 200. His on-base percentage is higher than his slugging percentage. I would, you know, the, I saw him have one of the worst at bats in the world 
over the weekend when he was coming up to pinch hit for, I think it was uh, Higashioka on Saturday. I mean, he was just flailing at the ball. He has no, he doesn't, him and Gallo, they don't go up to the plate with a plan. They just decide to do whatever. And, you know, Gallo knows that they're throwing to him outside, yet he's still trying to pull off every pitch. At least in the case of Gallo, you can go trade for a corner outfielder at the deadline and DFA him. You know, wash your hands of him because this is his last and only year as a New York Yankee. Hicks, you still owe him like 30 plus million dollars for the next three seasons. And you got to make a decision there at, at some point. Like, you know, the Mets, they were willing to give up on the remaining two years of Robinson Cano's contract. And it's done wonders for them. When Stanton comes back, you, hopefully you keep giving Andujar a uh, real playing time because he's looked all right in left field and is hitting a little bit. You got to make a decision about at least one of these two guys because you cannot continuously have two black holes like this in your lineup. And saying, we're giving ourselves the best chance to win. Night in, night out. Alright, going to give my voice a little rest here. Take another break. But come back on the other side and turn my attention back to the NBA. Where there were uh, some interesting comments made uh, this past week. uh, By a Lakers great. And some thoughts on the Nets. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see, at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Welcome back to Keeping Sports with Remember, as always, to tell your friends about the places that they can find this podcast each and every single week, whether it be our Facebook page, that would be facebook.com slash Keeping It Sports with M3. Um, You can go click the follow button, the like button, uh, set it up 
for getting alerts every single time you see a new podcast posted or you see the podcast go live. That's where you can watch it each and every single week if you choose to do so. You can follow me on Twitter. Um, I have two Twitter accounts. Um, well, technically three, but one of them is more of a tribute account to my uh, old cat, Lucky. But the ones that are very important here are my personal account, at M3Rosansky. That's at M-T-H-R-E-E-R-O-Z-A-N-S-K-Y, at M3Rosansky, and at Keeping It Sports. That's where you can find the podcast each and every single week. And on Instagram, you can uh, find me M3 underscore four underscore life, considering changing that name, but we'll see. And uh, for the podcast, it's keeping underscore it underscore sports underscore with underscore M3. All the places that you can find me on social media. Now, former Lakers great James Worthy had some interesting comments last week. He was he did an interview on the Stoney and Jansen show, a uh, Detroit radio sports show on ninety seven one The Ticket, and he was um, talking about <coughs> the. Mo- the current players in the league, the modern NBA players, um, um, ripping them over, the, in his mind, lack of fundamentals and maturity. Said, quote, I mean, Kareem had four years with John Wooden. Michael and I had three years with Dean Smith. Isaiah Thomas had some years with Bobby Knight. You learn the fundamentals. Not only that, you learn how to live. You learn how to balance your freaking checkbook in college. Uh, there's a lot of things. When you don't uh, get that, guys are coming to the NBA who are not fundamentally sound. All they do is practice threes, lift weights, get tattoos, tweet, and go on social media. That's it. Now, the end of that statement, we could have done without. The where he talks about all them do is get tattoos, tweet, and go on social media. That comes across as a little bit of the old man get off my lawn mentality that sometimes people can't stand to hear from players from the past. But let's be honest, a lot of what he said here is true. And most of it is due to the fact that these kids don't stay in college as long as they used to. Most of these guys are one-and-done uh, type players because they see the, the money that they can make. Now, what could help change that is uh, the new uh, NIL rules in uh, college sports that do allow players to make money for their name, image, and likeness. But um, over the years, players are like, why am I going to put my myself at risk for three, possibly four years in college? Let me just fake it through for one year and then get to the league. We're even on my rookie deal. I can make money to start to set myself up for the future, give my family a, a better life. 
even that is better than the room food and dorm on my scholarship in college. And how could you blame them? But in doing so, they leave college before you know learning all of the fundamentals of the game. You know, everyone just wants to be as much of a scorer as possible in college basketball. And a lot of these guys who are either coming into college basketball or have left that and came into the league in the last you know, six, seven years, they've grown up on watching Steph Curry and Clay Thompson, in particular Steph, <coughs> no disrespect to Clay, but cha- the two of them have changed the game of basketball as we've seen it. You know, the, the two of them have been remarkable marksmen and just been utterly dominant three-point shooters making it at such a high level that these kids, (coughs) they see that and they say, oh, I can do that. If a guy that's all of what, 6'2", 180 pounds is doing that, then I could definitely uh, do that. I can be, rather than be like Mike, who was As great as he is, I don't think we give him enough credit for the fundamentals of the game that he showed. Rather than be like Mike, this generation now wants to be like Steph. And they see um, all the the high percentage of three-point shots that he's putting up or Clay's putting up or that James Harden was doing in, in Houston. So that's why you're seeing a lot more outside shooting these days than you were seeing in the past. That's why you're seeing a lot more individualism in the sport than you're seeing teams actually be coaching coached up. Now, there's a little bit of uh, exception to that rule here and there. You know, Steve Kerr. Eric Spolstra, hell, even Jason Kidd to get to squeeze as much as he did out of that team and get them to um, a conference final was a remarkable um, job this year. But most of what you're seeing in the league right now is guys are winning based on talent alone, not system, not fundamentals, based on just being physically superior to uh, their opposition. It's coming across at times a lot like what has become the format and the life these days in AAU basketball. And now even one of uh, our modern day players here, Kevin Durant, who seemingly has an opinion on everything, came out and responded to this saying on Twitter last week, quote, my midi is sharp, but James is right. This ain't the old days. And even him being a guy that was a one and done player, he knows that he knows that, that it's different. Now it's different for him considering he's got the longest wingspan in the sport and is kind of a physical anomaly at 6'11", and the wingspan of beyond seven feet, you know, he 
can overwhelm opponents on every any given night. But for the lesser talented guys, they are definitely lacking a lot of the fundamentals and skills that you used to see in this league in the old days. Now, I haven't read or seen what his uh, thoughts on it, but I'm curious what James Worthy thought of the Darvin Ham hire as the Lakers' new head coach. And listen, last week I was somewhat critical, not to the level of some of these other people that are on TV or what you saw Kevin Garnett uh, coming out and essentially bashing all of uh, the uh, candidates for that job. But I did say that as much as I like Kenny Atkinson, as much as Terry Stotts uh, deserved another opportunity, and as much as Darvin Ham had worked his way and earned his way up um, the coaching ladder to uh, deserving a shot as a head coach, none of these guys felt like you know, the Lakers head coach. None of these guys felt like that kind of guy that comes in with that cachet that they're going to put everybody in their place and not tolerate any BS, any garbage that has gone on there the last couple of years. And there's a, you know, the, the problem with the Lakers is, is two fronts. A, after what happened this year, as great as he is, stop letting LeBron uh, choose the players on this team. Let the front office do that. Yeah, he can have input every now and then. But you guys should have had DeMar DeRozan. You, you would have been probably able to keep uh, Kuroots as well. But instead, you made the trade for uh, Russell Westbrook. And that's been a disaster. That was a, a mess. There were, there were at points this year where not only... Are they making fun of him on TNT with Shaq and the Fool or people creating YouTube videos with the circus theme in the background? The league had to put a, um, out a, com, um, a comment or a statement to the other 29 teams and tell them enough because they were starting to play the circus theme in the background every time Russell Westbrook had the ball on the road. You had opposing fans that were calling him Wes Brick and almost leading to a fight with him and a fan. So that was an outright disaster. But also, you got to stop with the outside noises there on the Lakers. Right? Kurt Rambis and his wife Linda Rambis, who doesn't even have a role in the organization, should not have say on who has playing time. It should not have been made a big point on the bottom line of ESPN that, oh, Darvin Ham was given assurances that Kurt Rambis would not be sitting in on coaching meetings. All right. Darvin Ham is a large enough man that he could pick up Kurt Rambis even at 6'8, his puny uh, 6'8, and throw his ass out of the room and lock the damn door. Because why anyone would invite Kurt Rambis into the coaching meeting, a guy that's, what, something like 30 games under 500 in his career as an embarrassing coaching record is beyond me. That is not someone you want to be taking coaching advice from, not someone you want to be saying, 
uh, all right, Kurt, who do you think should be getting playing time? Why he was in those meetings? Because he's only spreading the message that his wife, Jeannie Buss's best friend, once put out there. So to me, that's the biggest keys with the Lakers. You got to improve this roster, um, put better talent around uh, LeBron and AD, and you know they've got to keep track of whatever AD is doing in the off season. It's ridiculous at this point. He keeps getting this injured. He's still in his twenties. We should be at the point where, as great as LeBron James still is, going into his twentieth season next year, he should not be playing both ends of a back to back. He should be playing anywhere at, at max. His cap should be 55 to 60 games. Play no back-to-backs. Only play the home portion of a back-to-back if that's possible. Or the nationally televised half of it. And have him at full strength, full go as much as possible for a postseason run if the Lakers so happen to get there next year. This should be Anthony Davis taking over this team <coughs> as the true number one rather than relying on LeBron James on year 20 to do Herculean efforts just to drag the Lakers kicking and screaming into the postseason. And I mentioned Durant uh, before. It's going to be interesting to watch in the coming weeks what happens with the Brooklyn Nets because once the finals are over, I think it's about two weeks after that free agency begins. Or it, that is if the finals go seven games. And you're starting to see reports about how the Nets don't want to give Kyrie Irving a long-term contract extension. And rightly so. I mean, Because, let's face it, if not for the vaccine this year, there would have been something else. If If not for that... There would have been something else that said, oh, I can't play. I don't want to play. He would have had some other <coughs> stupid, ridiculous excuse why not not to play. Yes, I agree. The rule was ridiculous that home players couldn't play that were unvaccinated, but road players could. But for, the, for uh, this guy to only have played in 29 of a possible 82 regular season games this year. Combine that with the postseason. He played in 33 of the Nets' possible 86 games this year. They were never able to build any team camaraderie. And you saw the comments from Sean Marks a couple weeks ago in his press conference where he said, we want guys who are all in, fully committed to this team. You wonder... Was that him speaking rogue, or did he get Kevin Durant's permission in saying that? Did he go off on his own in saying that about Kyrie Irving? Or did Durant give his full blessing on that? Because if not, does Durant try to force his way out if they don't bring back Kyrie? If they don't give Kyrie a long-term extension? Because to me, if I'm bringing back Kyrie, it's on no more than one year with an opt-in for a second year on each time that I'm re-signing him. He's got to show a commitment and a willingness to be part of this team. (coughs) And if he is not here, does Durant start looking around? Does Durant start 
saying, this isn't what I signed up for, or is he all in with the Nets mindset? Remember, he didn't want them trading Kyrie Irving uh, mid-season when there was thought of bad blood between um, Kyrie and James Harden. All the talk was, oh, who do you get rid of? Who do you move on from? And while it wasn't Durant's preference, he also said he wouldn't stand in their way. Is Is Durant starting to get cold feet on the Brooklyn Nets? Or is he starting to get cold feet on Kyrie Irving and saying, I love you as a brother, but as a teammate, I deserve better. And quite frankly, he does does deserve better. Going to take one last break here. Close things out for this week on Keeping It Sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. All right, a few more minutes here, but a couple more things that I want to address, especially when it comes to the NFL, per se, here. Now, first off, I think a little too much was made about Kyler Murray and him not showing up for OTAs last week. First off, you see this all the time when it comes to contract negotiations, when it comes to a big-time player looking for a contract extension. And in the end, it all seems to work itself out. I mean, hell, last month, you saw uh, General Manager uh, Steve Keim come out and say that there's no chance he's trading Murray and that um, he realizes that most third uh, most quarterbacks after their third year are looking for a contract extension. But the problem here is Kyler, for the last six months, has been acting like a big, whiny baby. He's been acting like a brat. Now, whether it's that press release that him and his agent put out where the entire thing was capitalized for some reason, 
or it was after the playoff game where essentially he was refusing to take accountability, thought that too much of the blame was put on him even when he played like shit in that game. He's been whiny. He's been complaining. No, not so much on TV or or in interviews, but the message that him and his agent are putting out there, even for as talented as he are, he is, is not the message that you want to be sending if you're a guy looking for a big-time deal, if you're looking for a long-term contract extension. You've got to, in some ways, play ball. You've got to be a team player, especially when you're a guy that this was the first winning season you've had in your career. This is the first time you made the playoffs and your first playoff performance, you crapped the bed. If I'm the Ravens, I'm more so rushing to get Lamar Jackson's contract extension done than if I'm the Cardinals rushing to get Kyler Murray's extension done. Because Jackson has, outside of this year where he was injured, missed uh, the entire second half of the season, he's made the postseason every year. He's won a playoff game or two. Uh, he's won an MVP. He's done things in this league. How the Ravens would sign him to an extension tomorrow, he just keeps pushing it off, pushing it off, pushing it off, because he knows that after that next deal, he wants to be the guy that signs the deal that tops that. You know, In a way, I think he's waiting for Kyler Murray to get his deal done. He saw what what Mahomes got and what he's getting paid per year. He saw what Josh Allen is getting paid per year. He saw the new contract for Aaron Rodgers and the guarantees that he's gotten. And now if these reports are true that Kyler Murray could get somewhere in the neighborhood of $280 million, which would to me be outrageous for a guy that's only had one really top-of-the-line Pro Bowl year, he gets that. If you're Lamar, aren't you minimum asking for a $300 million contract or a contract where, say, you match him with the 280, but 240 of that is guaranteed? Something outrageous, something ridiculous in uh, that neighborhood? To me, Jackson's the one we should be talking about, concerning ourselves with when he's getting his deal done. Not Kyler Murray, who has shown little to no accountability or responsibility as their quarterback in Arizona so far. Now, it was an interesting week for the Raiders because they continue to have to deal with off-the-field uh, stuff when it comes to the John Gruden lawsuit is something that not just they're battling, but I think the league in general is got a battle on their hands here. When it comes to the fact that a judge ruled in favor of John Gruden on two motions on Wednesday, they denied the NFL's motion to... Uh, um, settle this in arbitration as well as the league's motion 
to dismiss this case um, outright. Now, there's no timetable for a a trial, but that's what the judge said that they're they're going to do. And let me tell you, even if John Gruden loses that, it's an outright nightmare for the league in this count because you go to trial, you go to trial on this. It opens Pandora's box to everything. It opens to you, whether it's that, whether it's uh, the Brian Flores uh, lawsuit, which I've told you time and time again, I hope he fights it to the nth degree and does not cave on a settlement with the league or all this nonsense that's gone on in Washington right now that um, hopefully leads to the exit of Daniel Snyder eventually. Now, the league, we know, or at least we're pretty sure, these guys have skeletons in their closet that they are scared to death of them ever getting out. That's why, you know, Jerry Jones backs Daniel Snyder for the most part. That's why they've never been able to vote him out because Jerry Jones, probably the most powerful owner of them all, has his back. Has And Jerry, you know, has his hand in the back pocket of at least eight to ten other owners that would ever prohibit a vote from uh, kicking Snyder out of this sport. And they, they must know that, damn, he's got all of this on his hands. We, if he gets kicked out, then he's just going to go Jose Canseco on us and go unfiltered and spread all the dirty laundry, things that we don't want to get out there. So it's really a crisis time for the league and at a time where they may have to deal with another situation. And it's also involving the Raiders because the Raiders finally became that team this week that brought in Colin Kaepernick for a workout. They finally were the ones that said, all right, Colin, we'll give you a shot. We'll let you have at least a workout with us. No, no other team has been willing to go there. No, you you heard talk over the years about San Francisco or not San Francisco, Seattle possibly going there, willing to open their doors to Colin, at least having a tryout, having a workout. But the Raiders who have always been, I don't want to call them rogue because rogue would be disrespectful to everything I believe in and everything that is right in this sport. They've always been that team that is willing to stake, step out there and take chances when it comes to social equality, when it comes to race equality, whether it become, whether it be executives, head coaches, they were the first to hire a black head coach. They were the first to hire a black general manager. So they've always, whether it was Al Davis or now his son, Mark Davis, they've always been the ones willing to take these chances. But as we know, Colin Kaepernick, it comes with, you want to call it baggage, you want to call it a lot of fanfare, a lot of attention attached to him, 
for reasons beyond football. And all of those reasons, quite frankly to me, are the only reason he has not been on an NFL field since 2016. Because you know, when he was on the field, he was he was a solid quarterback. He wasn't you know, he wasn't Brady, Rodgers, anything like that. But he had a winning record in his career. He got the job done. He got the 49ers to a Super Bowl under Jim Harbaugh. And he's been doing nothing but working out um, in his spare time, preparing for that hopeful eventual day that he rightfully so gets another shot at the NFL. And I, I quite frankly, I hope it happens. I know it will make people uncomfortable, but so be it. Sometimes in life, the most important conversations to have are those that are the most uncomfortable to have. And that's why I want to close out with this. And I'm not going to go politics on you here. I'm not going to go with my stance on some of the most important real-life issues in this country right now. But I will say this. Can everybody just get the hell off Gabe Kapler's ass? Anyone out there who is criticizing Gabe Kapler who is ripping him for the fact that he is not coming out onto the field for the national anthem because he, he does not feel comfortable in doing so right now. Get over yourselves. It's his prerogative. It's his choice. He's making a decision for him. You know, it's, it's funny. A lot of the same people that are criticizing him for this are the same that are say that are we're saying last year, oh, I shouldn't be made to get a vaccine. It's my choice. Well, why are you ripping something that is his choice? Because he sees what's going on in the country right now. He doesn't like it. He, he feels that not just conversation needs to be had, but action needs to be taken in order to take steps forward rather than the one step forward, one step backwards approach we seem to be continuously taking. And all of this is actions after what happened last week in Texas at that elementary school in the deadliest shooting that we've seen at a school in what, six, seven years now? Help. It's people. It's the 27th time that this has happened this year. 27. And you want to act like there's nothing wrong? Well, you're bringing up that. You're bringing up Black Lives Matter. You're bringing up women's abortion rights. And saying, oh, all of those conversations, that's just you being woke, M3. That's just you um, being no brainwashed no i and as i've said before i hate the word woke woke is just a lazy word from people that said oh it doesn't matter to me so why should i care why should this be discussed it's not a big deal well clearly it is so whether it's guys like gabe kapler steve kerr stephen a smith guys who i'm sure 
I've had differing opinions with at times uh, on things. But this is something we stand for, something they stand for. And I don't care how woke you call me for standing up for what's right. I have my opinions. You have your opinions. Respect those. Respect our rights. Respect Gabe Kapler's rights to do something that he feels is taking a stand for what's right. Now, yesterday on Memorial Day, he showed respect. He came out for the national anthem because of the symbolic nature of yesterday. How yesterday is about not just us our, our celebrating our freedom, but remembering those who fought for us to have that freedom. Somewhere along the way, we've taken that all for granted. We've all and have acted like, oh, anything that makes us uncomfortable is woke and anything that doesn't fit the narrative that certain people want out there is wrong and should just be ignored. And clearly those things can no longer be ignored. And I respect and appreciate a man like Gabe Kapler stepping out and doing so, doing, saying something while controversial, saying something from his heart that feels right. Because quite frankly, everything is not right right now. And we need to get back to that. And that, my friends, was Keeping It Sports on M3 for Tuesday, May 31st, 2022. Everyone, please have a great night. Have a great week. I'll be back next Monday. And until then, everyone, stay safe. I'll talk to you then. Peace. We have to go. Good night, everybody. I have had enough of you. Thank you for all the fun. Thank you. Hey, shut up, will ya? I don't want to see you. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to smell you. Now leave. I'll be back.